and I remember thinking that I'm like, wow, like I thought it was smart, but are all these entrepreneurs that much better than me? They're raising bigger rounds. They're they're employing more people. They had better exits, and I kind of felt like. I had so much more to prove and I almost felt, I don't know, like a big chip on my shoulder just to prove to myself that like they weren't better than me. This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ajay Kakani, CEO and co-founder of Timescale, an open-source time series SQL database that's raised over $180 million in funding. Ajay, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I'm Ajay Kulkarni, CEO, co-founder of Timescale. Professionally, I'm a former engineer turned product manager turned entrepreneur. I uh, started Timescale with my co-founder and former college roommate, Mike Friedman, whom I've known for over 25 years. But I would say at my core, I think I'm really like a builder and an optimist who's always curious to learn something new. Nice. I love that. And two questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and entrepreneur. What CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, I think, I mean, there's so many CEOs that, I admire and that I've learned from. I think what's interesting is I feel like every successful CEO has probably something you could learn from. I think if I were to pick one, I think I'd actually pick my father. So my father is also a tech entrepreneur. He started in the mid 80s when the PC market was just starting and, you know, about 30 years older. And I've learned so much from him. I've learned, you know, how to stay positive, how to stay curious, how to stay young at heart. If you had him on this podcast, you would think he was the younger one because he has so much energy. But I think probably the main thing I learned from him is, you know, really how to solve problems with optimism and perseverance. And from watching your father then, did you always know that you were going to end up in tech or where did that come from? You know, it was honestly in the mid 90s when I was in high school applying to colleges. Like, you know, I was a runner. I'm a runner, really into fitness, really into health. I did really well in AP bio. I thought I was going to become a physician. And I think when I first applied, I think early, I think I applied it as a pre-med. And then I think like I was working at my dad's office and just, I mean, not really working, but kind of just helping out here and there and was really exposed to the internet for the first time, like 1996. And I remember thinking, I don't know what this thing is, but it's just really interesting. It's like really exciting and got into computer science. And so I think my path will probably naturally ended up becoming an entrepreneur, but it was never like a set goal. It was more just like entrepreneurship and tech was always, which is kind of just drew me in. And I see that you started, I believe it was your first company there in 2009. Is that accurate? I started my first company in, it's not on my LinkedIn profile. My first company I started in 2003 was a chocolate company. I started with two friends and I mean, that didn't get very far, but we learned a lot doing it. Now, my first tech company that started was in 2009, Sinsobi. We ended up building the, what was at one point, the leading address book for BlackBerry devices. And in 2009, 2010, this is like you know, at the peak of probably BlackBerry when the app, iOS app store just launched. And I mean, look, I learned that like, it doesn't matter if you're like the tallest person on a sinking ship, you're still going down with the ship. So what ended up happening is like, we, we saw the writing on the wall. We saw BlackBerry and Rim were kind of doomed and ended up navigating to a an aqua hire, a soft landing with a, another startup, uh, this group messaging company called GroupMe, 
which was then acquired by Skype, then acquired by Microsoft. So it ended up working out, you know, okay. But that was my first kind of tech company. This is the second, but this has been, you know, by far, you know, the more successful one. And can you talk to us about the early days of that first tech company that you sold then? Because you started in 2009. So that was right in what, like the middle or towards the end of the financial crisis. So I think it could be interesting just to talk through what was happening at that time period and how you felt building a company, because I think there's probably relevant insights for founders who are just starting to build their company today in this crazy market. Yeah, I mean, I think every market is different. I mean, back then in 2009, I remember a Series A was like a two on a four, <laughs> which like isn't even a seed today. It's not like maybe that's a micro seed, even the current climate. So like everything is different. The key lesson is like, I think there's no good or bad time to start a company. Like in the macro sense, I think if you have like a great team and you have like this problem you're kind of just itching to solve, I think just go for it. And it's never going to be easy. You know, when markets are good, yes, it's easier to raise money, but there's more competition. When markets are bad, it's harder to raise money, but there's less competition. So, you know, I think uh, I'd pay less attention to the macro and just focus on the fundamentals, which is building a great business, solving a real problem and working with great people. And I probably that's probably in the opposite order. Probably I start off with working with great people and then solving a real problem and then building a great business uh, will flow from that. And it's yeah, I think that's probably the key lesson is, is like don't try to you can't time anything. Yeah, I can see that and, and makes a lot of sense. Now, what about books? I know we spent some time chatting about books in the pre-interview, but it was all about my book. So let's talk about your book. So if you had to pick a favorite book, what would it be? And this can be business or personal, or you can share one for each. Yeah, let me start with a personal one because I think that's probably the more interesting one. I'm a huge fan of The Alchemist. Have you read The Alchemist? I've not yet. Uh, but you've heard of it. Yes. Paulo Coelho, originally written in, I think, Portuguese. I think it's it Brazilian and then translated into many languages. The Alchemist, it's like this, I'm not going to give anything away, but it's essentially the story of this like Andalusian shepherd boy who, you know, has a dream about treasure, you know, early on. And then he goes on a journey to find the treasure. And a lot happens in that journey. And the key lesson that at least I took away from the book is that the journey is the destination. Like the journey is the reward. And I actually think about that a lot as an entrepreneur because there's so many ups and downs. There's so many curveballs that get thrown your way. You're always navigating stormy seas. But what I've learned is like to just embrace that because that's the point. Like the point isn't the exit. The point isn't the IPO. The point isn't, you know, I think the point is this journey and how, you know, you get to work with great people and and you get to work on interesting problems, serve customers and build something awesome. And and I always think about like at some point I'll have to probably retire or whatever, and then I'll I'll probably miss (laughs) the ups and downs. So that's probably the, you know, one book that's had a great impact on me is The Alchemist. Nice. That definitely resonates with me. One of my uh, personal core values is to enjoy the ride, which I have to remind myself of every single day. It's very difficult to do, (laughs) but it's there. It's the aspirational core value. So that definitely sounds like an interesting and and highly relevant book. So I'll check that one out. What's another book? Yeah. On the business side, there's so many that I love. Competing Against Luck, Clayton Christensen, uh, one of his classic books about the jobs to be done framework. He has another book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which I think is what kind of put him on the map. That's also a classic blue ocean strategy, uh, good strategy, bad strategy. These are all really great classic books. You know, they talk about how to build great products, how to how to build great business strategy. I can't talk about them enough. There's another book that's also kind of businessy called The Infinite Game mm-hmm. by this author, Simon Sinek. I think I'm pronouncing the name right. And it, it kind of goes to a really interesting, it kind of exposes a really interesting question, which is, 
like most games, like sports games, you know, have an end and there's a score. And, you know, if you won or if you, if you lost, but like businesses and really life in general, like there's no like score. So then how do you like, sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind and especially a business that eventually, you know, outlasts its founders, you know, ideally, like how do you define, you know, how well you're doing? How do you stay motivated? And he, he talks about that in the infinite game. And I thought, it applied a lot to entrepreneurship as well and business on how to think about building something that's bigger than you and you know, obsessing more about the problem and not about the competition. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that's too many books to list, but the, those are the ones that I'd recommend. Hey, I'll take it. As many books as you can possibly uh, share with us. And you know, does that come naturally to you? So if you're looking at you know Simon's book on you know, the infinite game, did that way of thinking come naturally to you? Have you always had that? Or is that like an internal skill and a personal skill that you really had to try to develop and nurture? Oh, no. I mean, I had to develop that. I mean, I think in the beginning, especially with my last company, Sinsobi, I remember anytime anyone would announce something that was remotely competitive to the company, it would like freak me out. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, oh, no, like, we're ruined, we're doomed, this, that, all this other company, this other company. And, you know, and and I think like with this company, with Timescale, I kind of had my the benefit of this Sobe experience, we realize that like, hey, like there's so much noise in the market, you can't get distracted. And it's really about obsessing about the problem and obsessing about your customer and like maybe staying aware of what other people are doing, but don't get rattled by it. Don't even pay attention to it. But, you know, in terms of like who's announcing what and, you know, at the end of the day, it's like if you obsess on your customer and you solve a big problem, you will be successful regardless of what other companies are doing. Absolutely. And one other question then on that first tech company, were you disappointed with that outcome with going through an aqua hire? I'm guessing when you started it, there were bigger ambitions than that. So what was your you know, kind of personal state of mind when you exited that company or when that was sold? And yeah, how did you, you know, balance that with you know, the aspirations to build a big, huge company? I mean, it's really humbling, right? Like you think you're really smart. You have these big visions and aspirations. And, you know, I, I think we I'm not sure if we even raised any money. I think we bootstrapped it. I think we tried to raise money. We couldn't raise money. We bootstrapped it. And then I'm having, a, you know, I think an okay, you know, soft landing. And I remember looking at all these people who like would raise bigger rounds, build bigger businesses, employ more people. And I'm not sure if you're a music fan at all, but there's this like Kanye West line. And I'm not a Kanye fan anymore, at least. But there's a <laughs> Kanye West line that I used to empathize with, which is, I'm going to not quote it verbatim, but to paraphrase it, it's something like, hey, like, are these people that much better than me? <laughs> you know? And I remember thinking that. I'm like, wow, like, I thought it was smart, but are all these entrepreneurs that much better than me? They're raising bigger rounds. They're, they're employing more people. They had better exits. And I kind of felt like I had so much more to prove. And I almost felt like a, I don't know, like a big chip on my shoulder to almost just to prove to myself that like they weren't better than me. I think that's probably what fueled me with Timescale is just like, to be like, hey, like that, that exit, like I could do so much better than that. Like I'm smarter than that, better than that. And yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if I did. I think that experience was very humbling, but like, God, like I think again, like the journey is the destination. Like there's nothing more valuable than like hunger. You know, I don't know if you have kids. I have two young kids and I'm kind of like, I just want my kids to feel the hunger, you know, I mean, not like physical hunger, but like the drive yeah. to do something, to prove something, you know, I think everyone should have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And I think that, cause I think that just drives you, you know, 
And I think uh, the best entrepreneurs probably have an insatiable drive to prove something. And yeah. So I guess that, I mean, it didn't create that, but it probably like fostered more of that inside of me. Yeah. And I think a lot of the best entrepreneurs, it seems like, especially in tech, it seems like they really do have a chip on their shoulder. One that comes to mind is uh, Travis Kalanick. And yet he, uh, I think everyone would agree, obviously controversial founder, but yeah, he, he has a chip on his shoulder. He's talked about that a lot. One thing that I think he talked about with Uber was that it was his revenge business for the uh, the previous one that hadn't worked out as planned. For you, was time scale the revenge business? I'm not motivated by revenge. I'm, I'm not really motivated by like fear or negative, or I try not to be motivated by these negative emotions. I'm more motivated by positive emotions, like this desire to build something, to really prove it to myself. So it wasn't a revenge business, but like, yeah, I think to be a successful entrepreneur, and I'm not saying I'm successful, but I think in order to be a successful entrepreneur, I think you have to have some type of irrational thing driving you because otherwise like you would have quit like a long time ago. <laughs> you know, like It's like, it's not a rational thing to do. Like there's so many, even the act of starting a company is irrational because it's kind of like, hey, like I think I know something that no one else knows. Like, really? Do you really feel like it's like, I mean, probably not, you know, but, but, but if you do, if you happen to be right, then like, it's a huge upside. And so, uh, I think you need something irrational. I mean, I don't know, there are probably sports analogies too. Like there's that whole, oh God, I forget the name now, but that, that Michael Jordan documentary series where you realize that like, Hey, Jordan, like the reason he didn't stop after one championship is because he had this irrational desire to just be the best. And he would create grievances <laughs> like when they didn't if he didn't have something motivating he'd create grievances to like drive him i'm not saying that's healthy but like, i think that's i think that's one reason why like he ended up winning so many championships and becoming so good because at some point like you're gonna just you know hang up your sneakers or, or exit or quit unless you have this irrational insatiable thing kind of just driving you yeah i watched that documentary when it first came out and it was so good but a few things that stuck out to me and i think you were just touching on that was uh i don't know what game it was but someone had said you know nice game mike after he lost apparently and he used that to you know power himself and to you know just basically like, crush this guy and go on and you know, win the game or i think the, the next game or the playoffs whatever it was and in the end he admitted that he had totally made it up the guy had never said anything to him in the first place but he needed that fuel to drive him, which I thought was just fascinating. But the actual, like, in my opinion, it was almost depressing, you know, in that big speech that he gave, it didn't really sound like someone who was, you know, the top of their game or, you know, one of the world's greatest athletes. It sounded very, like, almost insecure when he was attacking all of the people who had doubted him and, like, listing them by name. That just kind of surprised me. And it seemed like internally, he may not be the most happy person if that was you know, his state of mind when he goes up there. And I think it was his Hall of Fame speech. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone is inherently flawed in some way. Jordan has his flaws. Kanye has his flaws. I'm sure I have, you know, I know I have my flaws. I also think they're like different motivational structures. There's like positive ones and negative ones. And I think like revenge or creating grievances, it's kind of like the dark side of the force, you know? Like it'll fuel you but like, it's going to wear you down, man. You know, like it's going to wear you down. It's going to make you this really angry, bitter person. And I feel like I, I try to prescribe more to maybe sometimes more like the light side of the forest, which is to be inspired, to be motivated, to build something for the greater good, you know, to build something new in this world. Like life is short. So make the most of your time to like add to the world and make the world a better place because you were here. I mean, that, that motivates me. And, and I feel like that's a lot healthier. And I don't know, like, I think, yeah, those things are probably decoupled. Like, I think, 
I think to build something big, to be an entrepreneur, you probably need some type of irrational thing driving you. But that thing could be the dark side of the force or the light side. And it's it's up to you. But I agree that like some of these things, some of these motivational structures are, are unhealthy and I don't subscribe to them. Yep. Agreed. All right. Let's switch gears here now. And you're talking about building there. So let's talk about what you're building. So for those who don't know, can you just share the origin story behind Timescale? Yeah, let me start by talking a little bit about Timescale, then I'll, I'll share the origin story. So we're a database company, as you said in the intro. At a high level, though, you know, our mission is to, what we say is we want to help build the future of computing. And by doing so, build the next great database company. And if you think about like, what's our infinite game, you know, it's to help build the future of computing. But, you know, we do that by offering a database cloud that's optimized for what we call data intensive applications. And I can talk more about that. But essentially, it's like, hey, these software applications that capture and make use of a relatively large amount of data. The origin, we actually started off building a slightly different company. It was a company in the uh, IoT space, Internet of Things. And I had spent the previous decade in mobile. And uh, as we talked about with Sobe and BlackBerry and then with GroupMe and and mobile, you know, 2008 felt like the next big thing. And I remember when we started this company, you know, it kind of felt like IoT felt like the next big thing, like the success in the mobile, the next wave of computing. And we started off saying, okay, well, the computing is going to become more ubiquitous. It's going to be getting embedded in all these different things, like your home, your car, factories, farms, et cetera. And there's going to be a lot of data generated, and these companies will need a data analysis platform. So the first company we built was a data analysis platform for IoT. It was moderately successful. We had, you know, paying customers for tracking over 100,000 devices. And we needed a database to store that data. And so we ended up, this is 2015, ended up using a few off-the-shelf databases. And I won't name them, but like, they didn't really work for us. And we're like, oh man, like, I guess we have to build our own. And so we kind of built our own for our own use case. And it took a little bit bit longer than we expected. But in 2016, we were using it. And we essentially found that when we were selling the uh, IoT platform, customers would just ask a lot of questions about the database (laughs) that we had built. And we're like, oh, this is solving a much bigger problem than this IoT thing. And so we relaunched in early 2017 as Timescale, thinking, oh, this is the way we, we solve the IoT problem. It's not through a platform, but through a, a better database. And very quickly, the reaction was a lot bigger than we, we saw the reaction a lot bigger than we expected. And over the next few years, essentially, as we kind of built momentum and saw the market and we kept, even today, we keep seeing usage that we just wouldn't expect. And we realized that our opportunity is even bigger and bigger and bigger then we thought, like initially we thought it was IoT. Then we thought it was this thing called time series, which is like IoT and finance tick data and maybe IT metrics data. And then like we saw like all these use cases like gaming and music analytics and marketing tech, and email analytics and new internet protocols that, that were like, okay, this is not like classic time series. Like what is this? And what we essentially discovered is that as compute has gotten more powerful and storage has gotten cheaper, Developers are just building more applications that capture large amounts of data and make use of it. And, you know, we call them data intensive applications. But the basic idea is that, like, this isn't your basic CRUD app. This is like an application like, I don't know, okay, yeah, sure, IoT is a subset of that. So maybe you're collecting a lot of sensor data to help. Maybe you're manufacturing, you know, electric batteries, uh, which is one of our customers. And you want to see how your battery, how your manufacturing line is doing that. That's that's a data application. But maybe you're actually a music label, another one of our customers, and you're actually tracking in real time Spotify and SoundCloud listens and plays to see what's trending in real time for your your artists and you know their agents. 
And in the beginning, we struggled for a long time to understand like what the common theme was with these applications. And we kind of realized two themes. Like the first theme is that these are data intensive applications across like every industry. But number two is like these trends, compute getting more powerful, storage getting cheaper, like they're only continuing. Like this is the future of computing. The future of computing are these applications. And that's what timescale is powering. One thing I wanted to zoom in on there. Can you talk to us about that pivot? How many years into the company did you make the pivot? Yeah, we, we launched the IoT platform early 2015. It was probably mid-2016 is when I started to think that we needed to pivot. And then it was like, I think the fall of 2016 that we actually made the pivot. But it still took like three to six months to kind of relaunch. And we relaunched in April 2017. And what was going on internally as you were making that pivot, both you know, internally in your brain and internally in the company? Was that a hard decision to make? And was that a hard call to make? Or was the market just pulling you so strongly in that direction that it was a, a no-brainer? I think one of our strengths as a company, and especially myself and Mike as founders, we try to be very thoughtful and have opinions, but we also believe in intellectual honesty and clarity. And we try not to be stubborn. And, you know, a year into the IoT platform, we're like, why isn't this thing more successful? You know, we're like, it's successful. I mean, it's almost the worst, you know, I think bad ideas are easy to kill. Great ideas are easy to recognize. But when you have a good idea, you're like, why isn't it great? You know, and, or should we kill it or not? Right. And so I think that's what kind of gave us pause. We're like, hey, either we're building the wrong thing or we're building the right thing, but at the wrong time, or the right thing at the right time, but we're the wrong people to build. And we're like, we're not sure what it is, but something feels off about the traction being good, but not great. And I think another one of our strengths is just really listening, like super hyper listening to when you talk to customers or developers or to the market. And it was really remarkable when we talk about the database, like people would literally like kind of lean forward and be like, oh, hey, wait, wait, what was that thing? Can you tell me more about that? Because we're using like Cassandra or Mongo or whatever. And it's like, it's not working. So, and that actually that sounds useful. And after a while, we were like, no one's getting that excited about our IoT platform. <laughs> like it's maybe the database, maybe that's the thing to do. And yeah, so that's how we did it. But honestly, it's, I think it's kind of built upon like intellectual honesty mm -hmm. and, not, and, you know, not being afraid to admit that maybe you made some wrong assumptions or wrong decisions and also really, really like hyper listening to your customers. Interesting and super useful insights for our audience. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. Now, let's just say if one of your customers is at a conference, they're sitting around a bar and they're talking with their friends and they're saying, wow, timescale is epic. It solves this problem for me and it brings these benefits. How would they articulate that in, you know, in bar talk, in simple language? How would they explain the problem that you're solving and the benefits that the product brings? Yeah, I mean, I'll share how developers talk about us on Twitter or social media. I mean, they'll say it's magical. It's magical because it's Postgres. You know, it's Postgres, but somehow it's a lot faster than Postgres. It's a lot cheaper than Postgres because it's, you know, with the native compression, it's faster because of other optimizations that we've made. You know, it has the other things that make it easier to use, but they've built all this without sacrificing anything of Postgres. Like it's not a fork, it's just mainline. And so, yeah, essentially it's 
Postgres, but better, faster, cheaper. And can you talk to us about growth and, and any numbers that you're okay with sharing? I see on the website that it's 3 million plus active databases and growing. Is that your North Star metric or what's that primary metric that you look for to, to determine growth and the velocity of growth? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a few North Star metrics. Let me share some other metrics. So I think we were founded like six years ago. Since then, we've raised over 180 million in funding from some of the best investors. Benchmark, NEA, Redpoint, Tiger, Icon, Two Sigma Ventures. Today, we have over a thousand customers. So that, you know, that's one North Star metric is how many people are we serving. Our community. So we are an open source company. Um, our software is free. We only monetize through our cloud service. So uh, a lot of people use our free software. Uh, we consider them part of our community. Our community is 50 times bigger than our customer base in terms of usage. We got what's great. I mean, you create a huge pie and you capture a slice of it. And our team, our company has, you know, over 150 people in 25 countries. I mean, there are a few different North Stars, and especially this company has gotten more sophisticated. You know, every team has different things they look at, you know, sales pipeline efficiency, you know, uh, how many activated signups are we generating a month? But I think in terms of traction, those are some of the numbers that I, I find most exciting. Thousand customers, an even bigger community, you know, a reasonably sized team, and enough funding to really like control our destiny. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually one that I keep sharing with the team is that like, hey, we have this amazing opportunity. We have this momentum. We have like a great team and we have runway to, you know, make the most of this. Like, what more do you want? <laughs> I don't like, right? It's like, you want someone to just hand you the success? Like, it's like, right? And so I, I feel really good about our position. I think we ended up really finding a really rich vein, if you will, you know, like a mining vein, like a vein of value. And, and it ends up, this thing is even bigger than we expected. It's not just... IoT is not just time series. It's really about building the next great database company. A vein of value. I'm going to steal that one. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> now, take us back to those early days. And you know, let's talk about two different things here. So how did you start growing the community? And you know, what were you doing there? And then on the customer side, what were those first few deals like for you? Like the, you know, the big deals where you were super stoked, super excited about landing them. What was that like? And, and how did you manage to pull that off in the early days? Yeah, early days, first couple of years of the company, we did not really think much on monetization and really focus on building the community. And so everything we built was open source. Everything was free. The way we built it is we just tried to really help first. We provide a lot of value. We had a, an active, we still do, but we kind of early on, we launched our Slack channel where we provide free support and myself, my co-founder would be really active in it, you know, and, and we had some, our engineers are active in it. And so it's kind of like, hey, like, let's build something for free, build a community um, and provide a ton of value. And then we'll figure out how to monetize it. And we had some hypotheses. So that's how in the beginning we kind of built the community. But to build a business, you know, we had, you know, a couple of false starts. You know, first we thought, oh, you know, open source company will sell support. And at this point, I think, you know, Postgres is mature enough that it is hard to make much money on, on support. And TimeScale was really easy to use. So this is where like selling support actually, you know, a good product works against selling support. And then we said, okay, well, maybe we'll just sell large on-prem enterprise to rush, you know, to enterprise customers with large on-prem installations. And we did that in like 2019 and it was okay. But like in parallel, we launched this cloud product in 2019. And I remember at the end of 2019, I had this on-prem business and this cloud business. And the on-prem business, business was bigger, but the cloud business was growing like a weed and we weren't even paying attention to it. And we were like, oh, like this feels different. And it kind of felt like we were being stretched in two different directions. 
And so we ended up just going all in on cloud like three years ago, early 2020. And that's when I think the business really started to click. So like, I think the first deals I was really excited about, I was really excited about when we went all in on cloud and very quickly had, you know, like a hundred customers and we could see their usage. We could see what they were doing. We could talk to them. And they were these like innovators that I talk about building the future of computing. I don't think this applies to everyone, but we definitely took this kind of bottoms up PLG approach. And I think that's what maybe when I started really feeling like this business was starting to click was at that point. And how do you approach making these big decisions? So just from you know, our brief conversation here, it really sounds like there's these you know almost landmark periods for you where you have to make a decision to go down one path or another. How do you go about making those very big and you know, pretty serious business decisions? Just rock, paper, scissors with your co-founder? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm no, <laughs> I mean, one thing I hate, one thing I hate, there's often this like, I think, negative behavior. I think there's this failure mode where people say, oh, this isn't working. We have to rethink everything. And I actually don't believe, despite all these big changes we made, I don't think success is about finding these silver bullets. I think success is about the grind. I think it's about the grind, you know? And I think I think most people don't appreciate that, you know? And I found that a lot with, you know, sometimes people at times, so people who haven't lasted the company, it's like, no, this stuff is hard. <laughs> you, know, like it's, you know, it's really more about tactics than strategy, you know? But that said, like, I constantly try to pop my head up, especially the companies got bigger, I feel like it's almost my job to pop my head up and be like, hey, like, five years from now, what am I going to say? I'm going to look back and say, oh, man, that thing we did was, was dumb. Or we were so late on that. Or we didn't, you know, what, what is what, what could that be? And I'm always exploring these things. And most of them, you know, are just explorations. And every now and then, I'll bounce something off of my co-founder or someone else in the company that, you know, that has feedback I want. And, you know, I think when you have a great team, the decision feels obvious, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what I've noticed. It's kind of like, if it doesn't feel obvious, and if it's a one-way decision, then like, maybe pause on it, you know? But often, like, it'll feel obvious. And, and I'm not saying, like, you have all the data to prove it. And I think that there's that Jeff Bezos quote that, like, if you wait to have all the data to make a decision, you waited too long, like, you're too late. <laughs> but I think, like, with these big decisions, when it, it's time to make them, it just feels right. So I think one thing I do now, maybe, is I, and I'm, I'm also thinking about some big decisions right now, is I'll socialize them in the company. And I'll just kind of just test the waters. And I always preface it by saying, hey, I'm not trying to convince you just like poke holes into this idea, poke holes into this theory. And every now and then you get something that people say, oh yeah, like, of course, right? And I think maybe that's how you identify the things to really pivot on. But no, but you're right. I mean, I think like, I think business is about the grind, but making a few really key decisions at the right time. How do you define the grind? I think it's like the perseverance. It's like, let's say your marketing campaigns stop working, right? An easy answer would say, hey, like, we got to change our strategy. Our top of funnel is not big enough because our strategy is too, is wrong or something. And what's like, well, wait a minute. Like, have we fully, fully penetrated our market? Like, probably not. <laughs> you know, like, you know, unless you're like a trillion dollar company. Okay. Okay. So we haven't fully penetrated our market. Why aren't our campaigns working? I don't know. But let's think about it. Let's, let's like have some hypotheses, throw them on the wall. Let's test them. Let's iterate. Let's measure. Let's make kind of decisions on qualitative data if we have to. And you just keep iterating and you keep forming hypotheses. And I guess it's a combination of like the scientific method plus just like hard work. Talk to, hey, is this thing useful? I don't know. Talk to like 50 customers. Well, I can't find 50 customers. Well, find them. <laughs> like it's hard <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, I don't love that definition. So I'm not sure what you think about it, but it's really about perseverance mm-hmm. 
like, oh, God, sometimes I, I just worry that like, especially at timescale, sometimes we're just like, well, I always worry when I feel like we're trying to be too smart. And sometimes the answer isn't like, let's think about this at a high level. Some of the answer and like, you know, sometimes the answer is like, hey, let's just keep running up against this wall, but let's try from different angles and different approaches and then something will break through. So that's one of the challenges that you you face internally, it sounds like. What would you say keeps you up at night? I think our biggest risk is not strategy or market or funding or team. I think it's just execution. And not that we're dumb or we're lazy. No, it's we're, we're hardworking and we're smart. But even then, sometimes, like, it's got to be working on the right things. There are some things taking a month to, like, be decided that they could have been decided in, like, one one hour meeting. That's what I worry about. One of our operating principles at Timescale is shorten the cycle. Mm. And we kind of have this assumption that says, hey, like, I assume you're working as hard as you can. Because you're at Timescale, you know, we hire, we hire the best and the brightest. And everyone is just hustling. So I'm, I'm assuming that like, I don't want you to work every hour of every day. You're just going to burn out. And that's not sustainable. But I'm assuming you're going to work as hard as you can. But if we want to move faster, how do we shorten the cycle? Are there some things that take a month that should take a week? Some things take a week, take a day, take a day. Are there some things that we're debating that are totally reversible? Like if it's a reversible thing, then you don't have to debate it. Just try it. And if it doesn't work, just revert it, you know? I've been guilty of that too. I remember at one point I was kind of debating something with my co-founder and he was like, hey, Ajay, what's the downside if we like get this wrong and revert it in a month? I'm like, yeah, yeah not much, not much downside. <laughs> so he's like, Let's do it. Yeah, so that's what I worry about. It's like, hey, like, are we just working on the right things? And are we kind of uh, being as like, are we shortening the cycle as much as we can? And I'm guessing that becomes very difficult to do, right? With a team the size that you have, given that you are remote, how do you make sure that people are working on the right thing? I think everything, and you probably hear this a lot, Brett, I think everything flows from hiring great people. And we're a fully remote company. And so we hire the best and brightest across almost every time zone. There's some time zones in Asia uh, where I think it's a little too hard to schedule, but almost every time zone in the world. And I think, number one, you hire great people. If you don't hire great people, I think nothing else, I think everything else falls apart. You hire great people, then it's like, okay, everyone is motivated, everyone is smart, everyone is hardworking. Then how do you keep people aligned and inspired? And I think those are the key things. And alignment, especially in startup, when you're trying to be nimble and adapt to the market, alignment can be tricky. And, you know, alignment sometimes just means that like, hey, you just say the same thing over and over and over and over again until you're sick of saying it. Because when you're sick of saying it, maybe maybe at that point you reached everyone in the company. It's also periodically just checking in with you know, the random people in the company or the team and just making sure you're aligned. But I think the inspiration piece is also key. It's like, hey, it's not about like, yes, we want to hit these quarters numbers. Yes, we want to hit this year's numbers. But we're trying to build the next great database company. What does that mean? What's the next five years of time scale? What could that look like? What could the next 10, 20 years of time scale look like? And so I think you hire great people and you kind of communicate what you're looking for and really the problems that you want to solve as opposed to what you want them to work on, the problems you want to solve, and you inspire them. I mean, what I found is your team will often suggest things that didn't occur to you that, like I remember right before our Series A, we had some community traction and I had told the team, hey, to raise our Series A, we need community traction. We also need a few enterprise logos. We need some companies using us, our product that we can talk about in the pitch so that you know investors believe this is like a real company here, not something for just, you know, hobby projects. And I remember one of our, my engineers saying, hey, like, I know you want me to work on this feature, but like, 
Bloomberg, and Bloomberg is one of our early users. Bloomberg is actually like looking at users and they're stuck on this thing. I think I should spend the next week just helping them. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like that totally. Like that's, you're right. You're right. That's amazing. And so it's kind of like, I found is like, try not to be overly prescriptive, you know? And even if you think you know the answer, it's like really pose, the, hire great people, pose questions, and then let them come up with solutions and then, you know, keep inspiring. Have you ever been tempted to have people in the office and, and get rid of the remote culture or is remote something that's very important and it's central to the company? We used to not be remote. Pre-pandemic, we're about 60% in an office in New York City and 40% remote. Early on the pandemic, we left that office and became fully remote and just hired fully remote. I've had people debate this with me. I don't really care about this topic. I think it really depends on your company. I think for us, yes, the ideal solution is that we would all live in the same city and go to the office together and the office would be right outside our front door, you know? But the reality is that like, if you pick any geographic area and you require people to go into an office, even if it's like one day a week, then you're limiting your hiring pool to people who live within, I don't know, like a two hour radius of that area, which is incredibly limiting. I think our most limited resource is time and talent, right? And if it takes you a long time to find great talent, then you're losing, you know, you're already losing. So, you know, what I always say is like, yeah, like I agree. The best scenario is like this dream scenario, but that doesn't exist. So the question is, would you rather be headquartered in New York and have, you know, some A players and some B players because you're limited to the New York area? Or would you be rather be fully remote and just have A players, you know, because the pool is so much bigger. And I don't think anyone would say like, they'd want B players, right? But then you might, then you might ask Brett, it's like, okay, then how do you like make sure people are like, have empathy for each other, trust each other, feel like they know each other on a personal level, not just a professional level. And then what we've done there is really encourage team level offsites. And we have offsites all over, all over the world, you know, like we'll get together in, in New York and the Bay. Right now there's an offsite in Turkey that we've done offsites in, uh, Hopefully not in that earthquake area. Berlin, Barcelona. Yeah, you know, the offset's going on right now, and I didn't even know it was happening. I was like, I hope you all are safe. But it looks like they're all safe. But it's that earthquake is really, it's a, it's a huge tragedy. It's really sad. Yeah, and it's at the team level, you know? So it's like really easy to coordinate because you just, you know, flights and hotels for like 10, 12 people. Yeah, so I don't know. But I don't know. Every company's different. You know, we're a very engineering-heavy culture, and engineers work well remote. If we were like a sales-heavy culture, especially if we had like junior inside salespeople, remote would probably totally fall apart. Yeah, that's my favorite response to that question when I ask people about remote company. I think it's, you know, it seems like some people view it as this like binary thing where it's either you're all in on remote or you're not. But I think your answer makes the most logical sense, right? Where it depends. Yeah, it depends on the company, depends on what you're doing, depends on a lot of factors. So that resonates. And I can't even tell you, Britt, how many times I went into the office just to sit in the conference room all day on the phone. <laughs> And it's like, what was the point? <laughs> like, what was the point? <laughs> yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask about are just your views when it comes to market categories and category creation. Do you view it as time scale is creating a new category? Is it just transforming that existing legacy category? Or how do you think about category creation? Yeah, no, I listened to some of the other podcasts and I, I heard this question. I really like this question. So I don't have a preference. I think it depends on your market. But what we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. And I think databases have been around for 40 years. I think the rise of the cloud has made some parts of the database operations easier. 
but I still feel like it's kind of V1. And I think there's an opportunity to really rethink the database in the cloud. And I think that's somewhat what we're doing right now with timescale. Like we have like our cloud service, for example, you know, is it, it has a database offering, but it also integrates with S3 for object storage. And at that point, you can have, you know, Postgres tables that can be infinite in size, <laughs> like whatever the size of S3 is, you know, like, so is that a database? Is that a data warehouse? I don't know. So I think we're redefining the database category by really taking advantage of the cloud and really focusing on the the developer and the job to be done. Mm-hmm. In particular, I don't know, I, I think we have this like view that I think is quite powerful, that every company today is either a software company or is becoming a software company or is getting replaced by a software company. You can see this maybe in media, like Netflix is a software company, Disney, you could maybe one could argue is becoming a software company with Disney Plus, and maybe all these companies that are launching crappy you know, online video apps are getting replaced by software companies. So every company is becoming a software company. Great software is built on great databases. And databases are hard, you know, like it's actually a lot you have to worry about. But if I'm a developer, right, think about the jobs to be done framework, Clayton Christensen, right, like competing against luck. Like if I'm a developer, I don't want to think about the database. Like I want to focus on my application. I want to focus on my user, on my customer. And I want the database to work. Like I just want a place where I can write data, store data, analyze data, that's, I don't know, reliable, scalable, fast, easy, cost-effective, so that I can focus on my application. And I think databases today accomplish it to some degree, but I think we fail. You know, I think every database company fails, you know, in general. And one thing we're doing is kind of rethinking that category to really focus on the job to be done. And when it comes to reimagining that category, how aggressively are you targeting analysts and engaging with analysts to try to have them you know, share that same view for what the future is of the category? Or do you not view analysts as mission critical to your efforts there? I think analysts can be helpful. It depends what type of business you have. If you're a top-down, go-to-market, I think you need analysts early on. Uh, we're more bottoms-up. We're more PLG. We just added our first sales leader at the end of last year. So you know we got this far without a real sales team, right? So really PLG really bottoms up. And so for that, we're really targeting the individual developer who cares more about what their peers say on Hacker News and Twitter and Reddit than what, I don't know, Gartner says. Now, as we move up the org, you know, we are starting to engage with analysts, but it hasn't been a big part of the strategy so far, but it'll become bigger as we go on. Now, if we were a top-down company, I'd have a totally different answer. Super interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk a little bit about funding. So I know we've touched on that a few times, 180 million, anything over 100, I consider FU money. So you've reached that status. I think your blog post said the uh, the year of the tiger. So you've raised a lot of money, some super impressive investors there. What do you think they're so excited about? And you know, why are they investing so much money into what you're building here? Yeah, I mean, year of the tiger. I mean, this is kind of wild. Like that was uh, our Series C, we announced it a year ago. And our mascot is the tiger. It was the Lunar New Year was the year of the tiger. I think that's changed now, but that was the year of the tiger. And the firm that led our round was Tiger Global. <laughs> We're like, oh, this is wild. You know, like, is this a coincidence? I don't believe in coincidence. It's like meant to be. And so that's pretty wild. But like, you know, our investors early on, NEA, Benchmark, Redpoint, Icon, Two Sigma. I mean, the others, like, they've all been such great supporters from the beginning. And I think what they saw, especially in the beginning, was just like, they saw a team is super committed and dedicated to solving this problem. And that a team that really was trying to think clearly, but then had like a really big vision. 
And I think our investors, I mean, all of our board members, they've already had their big successes. They could have all retired a long time ago. You know, talk about this thing that keeps driving you. They're not in this anymore for the money. They don't have to prove it to anyone, but they just want to build foundational businesses. And from the beginning, Mike and I said that, hey, like if we're doing this, like we want to build a foundational company. Like we're not looking for a, a simple exit. We're trying to build something for the next, you know, the next great database company for the future of computing. And, you know, the, the pitch is a bit more detailed than that, but I think that's what they latched onto. And it's kind of like, hey, like this seems like a solid team and they have a really clear vision. And yes, every startup is a low probability of success, but you look at the expected value and the expected value of a low probability times a huge vision is pretty big. And for the last question, let's talk about that vision. So let's zoom out five years from today. What does the company look like? What does your day-to-day life look like within the company? And what's the impact overall for your customers? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, again, we believe every company is becoming a software company and databases are the foundation for great software. But in particular, at Timescale, we believe that Postgres provides a great starting point to build like a great database. And so we believe that like by building like a really great database platform, we can build a fundamental building block for every company in the world. What does it look like five, six years from now? Again, I think the database needs to be reimagined. I think the database in the cloud will look very different. Uh, you'll see some, some stuff for us in the next few months, the next couple of years that reimagines the database experience. In five, six years, I think you'll see, you'll see like the next evolution of the database paradigm. I think you'll see us super focused on the customer you know, building the next wave of computing, the future of computing. I think also at Timescale, like I think one thing I want to share is we're optimists. You know, we talked about earlier, like what motivates you is the light side, the dark side. And, you know, we're not like angry people motivated by revenge. We're optimists that are motivated by this belief in the power of technology and software to make the world a better place. You know, we have companies building battery-less sensors that reduce waste we have companies who are, you know, helping manage global recycling systems. We have companies building new internet protocols. We have companies building, again, like electric car batteries. We have electric car manufacturers who use Timescale. And I just think it's amazing that we can have a play a part in like how they are making the world a better place. And, and so I think in five years, you know, you'll see Timescale not as a time series company, maybe not even as a database company, but as something really providing a data platform for the future of computing. Amazing. Well, that is a great place to end. I think you left us wanting more, but I know we are up on time here, so we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? So timescale.com is our website and our Twitter handle is timescaledb. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about the vision here. This has been one of my favorite interviews, probably my favorite interview so far. So thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, Brett. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Keep in touch.